From the beautiful Art House Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga. My guest today is Don Donahue. Now, Don might not be a familiar name to most of you, and that's how he likes it. But as a kid, reading liner notes in his bedroom in Illinois, there were three or four names that always seemed to pop up on album after album, and Don Donahue's was one of them. What's funny to me is that I pictured him as an older, wiser gentleman, like what he is now. But at the time, if I was 15, he was like 27. Uh, turns out he was A&R on some of the most important albums of my youth. Michael W. Smith's Change Your World, which was just huge. Rich Mullins, The World as Best as I Remember It, Volume 1 and 2, and a little record called Liturgy Legacy and the Ragamuffin Band. That's insane to me. I do that exact same job now. I'm an A&R guy. But I didn't know then what it was. And it turns out Don might not have either. And there's a lot more here to starting a new label called Rocket Town with Michael W. Smith and then having to close it down. Like pretty much everybody, Don has had to reconfigure, reinvent, and reinvest himself in different roles and the communities that spring up around them, and he's going to walk us through that. And he's not done. Like, I'm not done, and you're not done. What's super fun is that he's brought himself to the podcast to not only share his story, but also to open himself up to let you and me speak into what's next. The end of this one is going to lead us to a different kind of episode that will happen in about a month or so. We're going to hear Don's story... And then if you have any thoughts or ideas or questions after our conversation, you can send them to me, and Don and I will talk through them on an upcoming episode. And all that's part of a larger discussion that I've been having about how we can make the podcast more useful and more collaborative. I'm excited to see how it goes. It's an experiment. Um, And I encourage you to dig in and send us your questions and your thoughts. But before we get to Don, I'd like to introduce you to Jay. There's so much that I got from compassion, things that so dear to me, things that you can never take away from me. And one of the things that I got from compassion was love. My name is Jay Mbiro. I was born in Matare, Nairobi, Kenya. Growing up as a kid in Matare was not easy. I grew up hungry, without clothes most of the time, without shoes. And as a little boy, I went to the streets of Nairobi and I started begging for food and money. It was one day that I begged the whole day and I didn't have anything. Nobody gave me anything. I saw a woman with a purse and I actually went ahead and and took it from them and I ran. But I was not lucky enough because I was arrested. That's when I went to prison at the age of nine. I remember kneeling down in prison and I prayed to God. And I said, God, if you exist, please take me out of this prison. I don't want this life. I don't want to live this life anymore. And when you get me out of prison, please get me out of poverty. Because poverty is going to bring me back to this place. When I went back home, I didn't see any hope. I didn't see anything that, that had changed. One day I just went to, to school and my teacher called me. And she said, you are one of the kids that have been selected to actually join Compassion. And I could not believe it. I was super excited. And I remember taking the news home and telling my parents that I've been 
selected to be one of the kids who are going to join Compassion Center. My life was going to be different. It was such a blessing to get into Compassion. Compassion introduced me to Jesus, and I got to know that if anything else in this world fails, the Word of God will never fail. And it is through Compassion International that I can now stand here and say that God actually had a plan for me. God actually, all along, He knew about me, and He knew my name. And that's why I'm alive right now. I'm a DJ now. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I DJ as a ministry. And to me, it's just a way of saying to people who helped me, to my sponsor, thank you. My name is Jay Miro, and I am a life changed. Can you imagine that? He was sent to jail when he was nine years old. And sadly, that's not a unique story. Compassion International is stepping in the gap to help change stories like Jay's. Sponsorship costs $38 a month. That's like taking your family to attend two middle school volleyball games that you have to go to because your daughter's on the team. Uh, So a couple things about Compassion. Compassion is 100% Christ-centered. Their projects are facilitated through and only through the local church. They have over 7,500 of these church projects worldwide, and each project is operated by local staff that share the language and culture of the children there. Sponsorships are one-to-one, meaning your sponsorship dollars go directly for the care of the specific child that you sponsor, like Jay. They take a holistic approach to child development. Their goal is to meet the physical needs, the mental needs, the emotional, educational, medical, and spiritual needs of each child. And you, Pivot Listener, you can do this for a child. Please visit Compassion.com slash The Pivot for more information. And please do use that link. Compassion is partnering with us to help bring you The Pivot. And when you visit through that link, Compassion.com slash The Pivot, it helps the podcast. And far, far more importantly, it helps to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. Please visit Compassion.com slash The Pivot and sponsor a child today. And now, my conversation with Don Donahue. You got to know that even though I know you probably don't feel that way, I when I was a kid, like some of the, or not a kid, like in high school and college, some of the most impactful records, and you know this, of my life. You can, you can tell had, me. That's it. I haven't heard it in a lot it. of years. You can tell me. <laughs> you were at, because you were at the, the Ryman a couple years ago when we played through Liturgy Legacy, yeah. right? The whole thing. Like, that was powerful. A record that you, like the job that I now have is the job that you had for that record, which blows my mind. Hmm. And that's not lost on me, but uh, so I'd, I'd love to get there. But I'm so curious, like where you grew up. How did you end up getting into those kinds of positions? Well, I grew up in Columbia, Missouri, which is just smack dab in the middle of the is that United like Mark States. Mark Twain country? No, Mark's Hannibal. He's up okay. north of St. Louis. It's kind of it's no country. It's the University of Missouri. Uh, it's 120 miles from both Kansas City and St. Louis, right on I-70. So mm. a lot of bands stop there on their way through because it's a good little route pickup, but. Yeah, I grew up there. I was not involved in the church. Grew up in a Catholic family. I have two older sisters, one who's 10 years older than me, one who's five years older than me. So by the time I came along, my parents had been parenting for a while. Yeah. So part of my faith story is when my parents couldn't get the girls up for mass anymore, we stopped going to church. You know, when they were teenagers, basically, kind of like, I don't want to go. It's like my parents were like, okay, we won't go. So there was a (laughs) church wasn't really a part of my life. And if it was, it was more liturgical. Mm. Um, I did go through my first communion and have the pictures to prove it. Um, And then in 
high school really was impacted by a couple people through a ministry called Young Life. And I mean, Young Life's a that. big part of my story. Mine too. And I think it, it may be a theme that we'll pick up on through this hour, but you know, the, the ability for people just to show up, be present, be positive, and be available got me to the point where I then went to them going, okay, what, why are you doing this? Why are you mm. so nice to me? You cool college guys, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a part of my story. I haven't told a lot, but, you know, at the University of Missouri, just a couple of years older than me, so I'm in high school. The Mizzou students kind of are the Young Life people. You know, uh, Brad Pitt was one of the uh, student leaders. What? Cheryl Crow would come play, you know, because she just wanted to play guitar. Uh, and Young Life Club. Our Young Life Club. And, um, Dude, that's nuts. I know. And, 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 and there were two leaders who impacted me the most. Um, a guy named Steve Fisher, who now works, I believe, in like addiction recovery in Colorado, and mm -hmm. Todd Wagner, who is the pastor of Watermark Church in Dallas, which is like, you know, one of these massive mega churches. Oh. So there's a pretty dynamic mix of people who were coming in and out of those doors. And I don't want to make it sound like, you know, Brad and Cheryl and people like that were like the active leaders, but they were they were around the periphery mm. and and they were cool. And there was just an incredible spirit about, it. I mean, you know, Young Life, I know Young Life, there's just an energy. And when you're 15 years old and you're looking to identify with something, that's just really where yeah. I chose to identify. Yeah, and those people remember your name. They remember your name and they show up at your events. Yeah. And boy, that made an impact on me. So I had a real planting of kind of the spirit at that time. And then I would say the person who probably, you know, really led me to a decision to follow Christ was a guy who was a year older than me in high school. And he was a lot better athlete than me. So I was always his backup in everything. So I would try to hurt him all the time. <laughs> you know, go low on tackling drills. You know, gosh, if I knock him out, then I can get some more playing time. And I just remember, I mean, I wasn't malicious and look at me, I'm, I'm not that tough a guy. So it's like, but I just remember he always had that same vibe. Smile on his mm -hmm. face. Hey, man, good hit. You know, so he was the one I ended up calling. You know, I was, I was six, 17. So uh, you're at Mizzou, you're at a big college campus, and when you're 17 and untethered to anything spiritual, all you're trying to do is get into frat parties. So you follow the lifestyle and you go, I'm, I'm drinking beer at 17 and kind of going, this, this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I found Blake and I was like, can you truly walk me through what this other life is all about? And yeah. he really led me um, uh, to the Lord when I was just, uh, I think, a junior in high school. And then, so the interesting thing then is that then the the subculture of Christianity kind of gets heaped on you really fast. Yeah. And if you weren't raised in it, it gets to, it's a little odd, right? Hmm. So I can't listen to those demonic records like Genesis and, and, and REO Speedwagon and Sticks and, you know, I was a pop kid. And it's like, you can't do that. You've got to listen to this instead, you know, kind of the replacement, uh -huh. like music. You know, so I'm, I'm going to Christian music, and it's like, listen to this, not that. And I'm listening to this, going, this is awful. <laughs> like, there's, there's nothing good about what, what did I join? <laughs> so I like these cool bands over here and these experimental things. So it's like Genesis is straight up biblical, guys. <laughs> that's right. It's the first book. So um, anyway, 
then I then somebody gave me Michael W. Smith's project, hmm. and it was. I don't know, it was 1985, 1986, something like that. And that, it's funny to listen to now, obviously, everything is that was recorded in the 80s. But that record was huge. I mean, me. it opened with this massive orchestral interlude kind of thing and then goes into the races on and these songs that are just, again, a little funny to listen to now, but they're great. And I just remember going, okay, now that I like. Mm. Like, there's something there that I like. And I, uh, by this point, I'm a freshman in college. I went and saw Smitty in concert at the uh, Shriners Temple in Springfield, Missouri. It was funny. And two things struck me that I think impact my story. One, um, everything about the production of the show, the sound, the lights, the staging, the band, uh, looked like what I had just seen at a Phil Collins show. Hmm. And what I know now is Michael Blanton and Dan Harrell, who were the managers and really shaped the careers of a lot of people that we'll talk about, invested a lot of money mm -hmm. to make their product look great. And as a mainstream kid, I remember going, I like these songs, this show is really cool. And then from where I was sitting, I remember thinking, and I think it's incredibly progressive that this guy has these two incredible female guitar player singers hmm. like it's like the era of sheila e and prince and all that and i'm like man this looks just like that and they're amazing and i come to find out it's wayne kirkpatrick and chris rodriguez with perms <laughs> <laughs> from 30 rows back and in the era of long trench coats and perms you know and wayne singing amy's part on restless heart and i'm like yeah. okay I had every reason to believe that they were just Dude, massively talented women. so funny. <laughs> but no, it's Raj and Wayne who, you know, turn out to be dear friends. But, you know, back in those days, we all, I just went back to the merch table and Chris Harris and Rodriguez and six or eight of us went to Hardee's afterwards, you know, and just mm -hmm. hung out and talked. So that was kind of my first touch of, wow, this, this is cool. Then Smitty's big picture record came out and changed everything for me. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it changed everything because of the lyrics. So come to flash forward, it's all it's all Wayne, Kirkpatrick, and he had this unbelievable ability to write these, what you might view as, I don't want to say double meaning, but it's, is it a girl, is it a god? You know, that's when that whole mainstream kind mm -hmm. of thing started happening, and they spent a fortune on the record, and it sounded great. And so I went to that show, and I remember... I remember it being elevated even more of going, and that's is at the Fox Theater in St. Louis, opening night of the Big Picture tour. And I remember going, I want to work with those people. Hmm. Like they're doing something. Like I like this tribe I've joined. I really like everything about what they're doing. How do I, how do I chase it? So I remember calling information for Reunion Records in the phone book. And the receptionist answered, and I said, I, I want to book a Michael W. Smith show. How do you do that? And she gave me a number. turned out to be in New York City. I called, and long story short, I, I promoted a show at Mizzou in April of 1987, the only mm. show I've ever promoted. But I thought, I want my friends to see this. Mm. It was fantastic, and it was great. And, and that night is really where I met people that became kind of lifetime wow. friends and fans. And 
I think we lost about $1,500 on the show, you know, uh, to this day. Scott Huey is a good friend of mine who sold me the show, and he, he always laughs about the fact that I just said yes to the first price he gave me. You know, so. <laughs> sure, I'll pay that. that was the like, first thing I'll teach you, kid. I just really needed to connect two shows, and you're in Columbia, Missouri, and it works. So, uh, And then they hired me, Scott and John Huey hired me to move to New York mm. and work for them. So I dropped out of Mizzou at the end of my junior year. I was in hotel and restaurant management strictly because it could get good grades there. I was never a great academic kid, but I just went, uh, I, I've just seen something that I want to do. Scott called a month after the show, and he said, we really liked working with you. And we were just bought by this huge talent conglomeration called ICM, and we got plenty of jobs. Do you want to come up and work for us? Wow. And, oh, by the way, I need a roommate. And I'm like, yeah. I'm hmm. 20, 21. Now that I have a 23-year-old son, if he would have brought me that equation three years ago, I went, no, no you're going to finish school and you're not. But my parents really blessed it, mm. and that kind of changed everything. Yeah. So you so, moved to New York City. Moved to New York City. How long are you there? 364 days. Okay. Not that I was counting. <laughs> Loved it. And the only reason I know that is I moved up like on Labor Day weekend one year and moved back yeah. Labor Day another. And absolutely loved it. Time of life to live up there. I, I love that my boy lives up there. I've got another son moving there in a, next month. But I knew I wasn't built for that long haul. I, I'm, I'm kind of a baby in the faith. And I just I just kind of remember going, I'm, I'm from central Missouri. I love New York, but I can't see myself hmm. building a life here. Um, so uh, Did I... Did you come back to Missouri? Nope. I followed up on the on the um, relationships that I made through the Big Picture Tour and went to work for an artist named Billy Sprague, who was the opening act on the Big Picture Tour. And he, and Amy Grant's Lead Me On Tour is going out that month. And Chris Rodriguez, the female shredding guitar player, <laughs> uh, and his wife <laughs> needed a house sitter for the tour. They were going out on the road with Amy. And so I moved down here right from New York and I've been here ever since. It's 31 years ago. Crazy. That's so, chapter one. That's chapter one. So <laughs> I worked, so, yeah, so yeah, so I worked for Billy, I guess, kind of like as an assistant. I did merchandise and phone calls. I did some booking. I traveled with him. And Billy was on Reunion Records, okay. which was the label that Michael Blanton and Dan Harrell had started. Mm-hmm. Basically, because as managers, they couldn't find anybody to sign Catherine DeColi and Michael W. Smith. So they just started so they just a label. started their own. Crazy. And all of a sudden, it became it. Yeah. So um, Billy was on Reunion. That's where I first personally got to know Michael Blanton. And you know he's one of the brightest lights of encouragement that you'll ever meet in your life. And I remember the time he spent with me backstage at a show somewhere just telling me how happy he was that Billy had somebody and I was doing so much for his career and, you know, just doing what Mike does, just breathing yeah. life into people. And as a newbie, it was like, gosh, you know, this is, this is the greatest. Um, and so Mike and Dan and Jeff Mosley at the time was the president of Reunion and Terry Hemmings was there. Um, it's kind of a super group of That's crazy. executives. Who, yeah. yeah, who now all run their own. Yeah, well, mostly left. My recollection is Jeff left to go somewhere, and all of the A&R responsibilities went back on to Mike Blanton, who had kind of always been the A&R guy. 
So Mike just asked me if I wanted to interview for the job. And so I went in and met with Mike and, you know, I don't know how much time you spent with him, but every time you spend with Mike, you can run through 17 brick walls, you know? So I knew yeah. the interview was great. And he kept talking about, you know, I need an A&R guy, I need an A&R guy. And his office was attached to my best friend at the time, or one of my best friends still, Chaz Corzon. And I remember at the end of the interview going in Chaz's office, said, I really think it went well, but can you tell me what the word, what the initials A&R mean? Because Mike kept saying A&R, A&R, I think A&R, I just A&R. got a job I don't, and I don't yeah, know what I don't it know means. what the initials mean. <laughs> so anyway, I, that's how kind of new I was at it. But I think what Mike saw was... Which to the listeners, that's artists and repertoire. Artists and repertoire. Artists and their songs. Artists and their songs, like putting the whole packaging together, finding, discovering, promoting, all of that. So Mike is one of those, and and, and he he has severely shaped the way that I've always operated, Hmm. and that is find good people and put them together. You know, it doesn't need a, we don't need a formal job description. Find good people and put them together. And so he fortunately brought me in. And then I remember something he said to me, which impacted me. He said, the more you're in this office, the more disappointed in you I'm going to be. Hmm. And I said, well, tell me what you mean by that. And he goes, well, you're new to town. We've got to build a roster. So you need to know studio managers, second engineers. You need to be at shows. You need to be basically get out there and represent us. Sitting here behind a desk is not going to do anything. And I'm 22 years old going, this is the greatest. <laughs> Don't show up and I get $500 a week or whatever. You know, like, shows, this yeah. is awesome. <laughs> so um, any story that I will tell you about Rich or anybody else that I kind of had influence with, really at that point, Mike had signed. So so Mike signed Rich Mullins. So in no way do I take credit for that discovery. That was Mike. And that was because Mike wanted Amy to cut Sing Your Praise to the Lord. Hmm. And Mike being a commercial A&R guy, didn't want the middle third, which is this long, drony orchestral moment that Rich put in the middle of this pop song. Okay. But Rich didn't want to not do it. But on the Amy version, that's not in there. And so Rich, I think, was up in Cincinnati at the time. And and Mike just kind of heard his songs like this. I got to meet this guy. Well, you could not meet two different people in the world than Michael Blanton and, and Rich Mullins. But somehow it just worked. It really worked. So so Mike hmm. signed Mike signed him. Uh, they made the first record, which didn't do anything. They made the second record, which didn't do anything. And as you know, you know, that you don't really get the third shot anymore. Well, I don't, you know so much more about the current way things are done. I think you now just put out the first song is done. Yeah, okay, the second yeah. song is, you don't get yeah. an album anymore. But Mike got him to the third record, and that's when Awesome God showed up. Hmm. So I tend to look at the tenacity of believing in an artist if in today's world probably wouldn't have got to Awesome God, hmm. which probably would have never got to Liturgy Legacy, which probably, you know, just, yeah, you know, that's not a shake your finger, get off my lawn kind of thing, but it really is like the, people used to be a lot more patient. Of course, costs were less and all that, but, but so we divided the roster and I inherited four or five artists and Rich was one of them. Mike still worked a lot with Smitty, but that changed over the years and it went to, to a, a lot to me as well. But Liturgy Legacy is probably the first record I've really worked on with Rich. For real? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I really do think it was. So you didn't work? Did you work on the world as best as I remember it? Those two. Sorry, those two are the those? first ones I worked Cause on. That, yeah, because that's when they start getting great. Yeah, it's on those records. And 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 yes. So uh, thanks for reminding me. I'm 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 older than you. Uh, Reed Arvin and I, the producer, when I think the first business trip I ever took, we went to L.A. and Phoenix to go see him in concert to talk about the records and mm-hmm. the new songs and. I remember, uh, I you know I I was literally still getting to know what my job is, so I, you know. And Reed Reed was a buddy. Reed and Billy Sprague were mm-hmm. best friends, so Reed and I knew each other well. So it was like Reed helped me kind of okay. Here's what we're looking for: we're looking to sit in a hotel room and listen to these songs. And you know, Rich would never fully form anything, so he was putting these songs that we now know really well in his show that were half ideas. You know, so Amazing. and I I found when when you guys did that Ryman show. Uh, I took uh, Andrew Peterson and I went to lunch and I don't know Andrew well, but I greatly respect him and everybody who I know loves Andrew. So mm-hmm. it's like, I, I just want to have lunch with Andrew. But yeah. I had gone and found my notes from that trip of mm. these song ideas and very specifically boy, boy like me, man like you, which I think is just one of the most beautiful songs about Christ ever written. Yeah. And, and just kind of looking at, you know, Maybe thirty years ago, what was that? What what was going on at that time? So we and then of course Rich wanted to do a double album, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> because he had developed through touring the ability to draw the world, hmm. and that's he liked art, so he'd draw a globe and he'd put everything where it should be and connect the countries, and that was that idea of this is the world as best as I remember. It was his. Oh wow! He would. I draw, never knew what that. Yeah. He would literally, and in fact, I recently found this hysterical picture from 1991 of like an announcement of it. And man, Reed is in some shorty shorts and, <laughs> you know, I've probably got a mullet. And it was just like, I sent it to Reed and he was like, you can't show that to anyone at any time. So, but we were gathered around Rich who had out an oil painting set and he was drawing the world. And mm. I have that oil painting. Oh, so he... Goodness. He he really did do that. That was the, the so so he would he would draw things the best as he could remember them. And then a story that I told on the documentary that that happened after he died was when we would finish a record, he would come in my office and he would recite his lyrics to me in sequence so that I could type them for the liner notes. You're kidding. So he'd come in. I mean, we'd have to set a time and. He'd go, okay, the first song is Boy Like Me, Man Like You, and You Was a Baby Like I Once. And and it's You Was a Baby, not You Were, it's You Was. Because I'm typing, because he didn't, he wasn't going to do it and had to get to the packaging people. And occasionally he'd get tripped up and all that, and I just said, well, why? You, you don't write these down? He goes, if I write them down, they're not worth singing. If I, if I, if I, can't, if I can't keep it in my head, then it's not good enough to stay. So the only time he ever wrote them down, quote unquote, is when we would do this practice, which I loved. Wow. And that's, I've never met anybody like that before. I know a lot of people that are dedicated to the craft, but he just believed if I can't remember it, then it's not worth having to have a note to remember it. Ugh. So. That just to me means I would never have finished any <laughs> songs ever. Um, so, yes. Uh, that was great. So I got to it got I worked a lot on Michael's Michael W's records, Go West Young Man, 
picture perfect. We did it, Mike and Dan and Terry did a mainstream deal with Geffen Records. I worked with a local band here in town called this that ended up being called the Semantics, and it was Bill Owsley. Oh yeah. Millard Powers and Jody Spence was the drummer, but Ben Folds was also a drummer in that band. So we showcased those guys a lot, and they were oh, great. Yeah, they Have were you heard those songs? Oh, yeah. I remember seeing them live. That was like... Oh, really? That was right when I came moved here. They had stopped, but they would randomly show up and play like club gigs. Yeah. Because Miller Powers is now in Counting Crows. Right. And Ben's and, had a little career of his own. Yeah, but he was right. literally just the drummer. We played a showcase for RCA at Cafe Sine in... Greenwich Village, and Ben never said anything, never interacted with anybody, and I took him to lunch one time at Houston's, which was like the place to go to lunch, and I just remember going, <laughs> I am, I, he's so cool, and I've, I mean, we, we had nothing in common, because I'm kind of <laughs> hypey, young, eager guy, and, you know, Ben's a genius, and it was just like, yeah, I don't think we're going to have a second date, you know, like, but oh it was really fun to watch and continue to watch his career go. So there's, yeah, there's these spokes of things that have come out of this town that are great. I'm super thankful for that incubator. Yeah. But then there came a time. So 1990 is when I started in 1995. In those five years, the ownership group had sold reunion or pieces of two or three different times. That's when all the mainstream companies were coming in and buying things up. And as a young idealist who loved my artists, I, I that's the first time I'd ever got a memo from somebody in New York that said, here's the artist you have to drop. You Whoa. Know? Oh, yeah. Ashley Cleveland doesn't make us any money. You got you to gotta drop Ashley Cleveland. Oh. It's like, well, what? what? I, I thought that was our job. You know, but no, there's... And that's a little black and white, but in general, hmm. you sell, you you lose some control. And the story of Blanton Harrell starting Reunion, Brown Bannister was the other owner at the time. Michael W. had just bought a couple hundred acres out in Franklin, and we would just go sit out there and talk. Hmm. And I think one day I said to him, why don't we do what they did 15 years ago? Like it was you and Amy and Mike and Dan and Brown and you kind of put the walls up and you changed the history and the course of Christian music by just being together. Let, let's Now that everything's getting big, let's go small and let's start a new thing. And mm -hmm. that was in the fall of 95. And we started Rocket Town in June of 96. And mm -hmm. that was, I mean, I think, I think that was in the original announcement. Like we want... We want to do what they did. Wow. These are our heroes. These guys changed the course of the music industry. Everybody's going big. We want to go small. We didn't have a new art. We didn't have an artist signed. <laughs> we didn't have a distribution deal. It was but, me but and Michael, Michael. You and Michael, you me ran and, the day-to-day -day of the label. Yeah. It would be funny to look back. I don't know what we did those first couple of weeks. I mean, obviously, <laughs> a lot of people were sending us music, but... I mean, I knew how a label, a label ran, but I had never run a label before. I just, I, I, I guess a theme here is I, I think I can be pretty good in the room. I can get a job with initials that I don't know. You know, kind of mm -hmm. the barking dog that caught the car. You know, it's like, oh, mm -hmm. now what? Yeah. We got a label. So I had placed three or four Chris Rice songs on the last record I made with Kathy Tricoli at Reunion. They were all great songs. Chris has a song called Hallelujahs, and 
I just heard that, and I went, "We gotta, we gotta build something around that." So mm-hmm. Monroe brought him down to the little house in Franklin where we were, and a lot of people were kind of vying to do something with Chris. And I don't know how well you know Chris, but he's as unconventional as they come. Very much like Rich. Like he is not gonna play. He's not gonna be pulled by the things that pull artists. He he made his living over the summer just playing camps. He did not have a fee. He just said, I, I, they give me a check at the end of the week and I'm happy, you know, mm. and it works for me. The first three or four artists that we signed to Rocket Town were really put on the track because of Chris. Mm. And that was what Chris, Ginny Owens, Watermark. In order, it was Chris, Watermark, Ginny Owens, the Exodus record, and then Sean Groves. Wow. And then Watermark is Nathan and Christy Knuckles. Nathan and Christy yeah. Knuckles, right. Yeah, right. Um, so, and and Nathan, I think Christy told me when we heard Deep Enough to Dream on the record, we knew that's where we wanted to be. Hmm. Like, you just let artists do what they wanted to do. So, you know, getting into the Rocket Town chapter, it it sounds like you were in town at that point. You were in a band. You were, you were yeah, hustling, I was doing those things. So this is late 90s. Yeah. But I'm telling you, there was a five, in my career, there's a five to seven or eight year period where it was easy. Hmm. I mean, it was just, I mean, and certainly Smitty opened uh, tons of doors just because of who he is. He's my partner, but we made good choices and we had good partners and we had incredible artists and we didn't spend anything on records. We were very generous with royalties. It was a very, it really was kind of a family spirit, you know, that we did things with. Um, And so it was, I mean, saying it's easy discounts how hard the artists and we worked, but you spend a little money, you put it out in the market, and these pieces of plastic just sold like hotcakes. And um, that was a great business. And so how long did you run Rocket Town? What was the length of that? Um, Which is another way of saying, how long did Rocket Town exist? We started in 1996, and I think we ceased operations in 08. Okay. And did you run it the whole time? Mm Mm-hmm. So you obviously made some records that impacted a lot of people. There were other artists involved. Like what leads to a label closing? And, And more importantly, really the question is what what is it like when you are closing the doors on something that you've put so much of yourself into? What's that process like? How does it feel? What does it look like? Well, it, it, it gosh, it sucks. I mean, it's t- 2004 is when it really started. Okay. Um, I bought my first iPod. And it was the white one with the wheel on mm-hmm. it. And I came back to my office and I plugged it in. And I, I mean, iTunes didn't exist. I don't know what you, where you got music to put on your iPod. Mm-hmm. But for an hour or two, I just remember cherry picking all my favorite records back from when I listened to all that heathen music like Genesis <laughs> back in the <laughs> 80s. And I'm like, man, this is so cool. I can go to Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and buy four songs instead of the whole thing. And... Did it dawn on you in the moment, like what that meant? Not in the first 90 minutes, because I was a consumer. I -hmm. was a lover of music. And I went, this this is genius. Steve Jobs has done it again. This is, uh (laughs) uh-oh. 
game over. It was it, that drastic. Hundred percent. Really? It really and I was I was kind of embarrassed that <laughs> I didn't get it right away. But then that also shows you how much I love music. Mm -hmm. Somebody was giving me a device that I could go easily consume music. And and then, you know, I started to think about how how a, a, a label makes money. And at that time, you know, CDs were probably in the $16 to $19 range. Mm-hmm cost you know it was five or six dollars i mean there's you sell a couple hundred thousand cds you're 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 making good you're making money. money yeah real money and the my first thought was if you take our profit and loss statement from a 18 dollar top line to a 99 cent top line <laughs> that's a big swing mm -hmm. napster was now in the in the you know kids are getting it free and all that and i just thought I, there has to be a way forward through this because there's always going to be music. So the one person who didn't necessarily say they knew what to do with, but they connected me with with a very powerful attorney in Atlanta named Joel Katz. And Joel is uh, he he's a he's a big mover and shaker. And they said you got to talk to this guy. Smitty and I go down and we have our meeting with Joel on Joel Katz Boulevard in the Joel Katz conference room on the 25th floor of like the Joel Katz building. Like, yeah, it's doing all right. <laughs> it's doing okay. Uh, we sit at the end of this long table and I'm on one side and Smitty's on the other and Joel says, okay, why are we here? And I said, well, seven or eight years ago we started this label um, and we're at a turning point now in the digital thing. We, we kind of need to know. We heard you're kind of the guy and he goes, all right, well, he points to me and he goes, give me 10 minutes on Rocket Town. So I gave him 10 minutes on Rocket Town. Here's the history. Here's what we've done. Here's the revenues, all that kind of things. And then he goes, okay, okay, I got it. And he points to Smitty and he goes, give me 10 minutes on you. I've heard your name, which was fun because Michael's like one of the most humble human beings mm -hmm. in the world. But he had to kind of say, <laughs> you know, this is how I'm, I tour, I'm all kind that kind of, of stuff. Big kind deal. of a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> so at the end of that 10 minutes, he stops and he goes, okay, 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 I got it. And he points to me and he goes, you, I got nothing for. So he points to Smitty and he goes, you, I know what to do with. And I went, oh wait, well, we're he's the one that's probably not as, <laughs> I said, yeah. we're here for me. And he goes, do you think I'm an idiot? He's going to fix you. You know, so <laughs> there was just kind of this movie moment. So that began a two year hunt that ended with uh, a, a deal with Live Nation. So that was in the era when Live Nation was doing deals, these big all rights deals with artists. So they're advancing tons of money to U2 and Madonna and Jay-Z and all these people to basically get all of their rights under one hood. And Joel saw Michael as kind of the faith and family portal to that. Hmm. Well, we ended up working on a deal with Live Nation for almost two years. And we got the deal done. And the deal was going to be Michael's rights. And Rocket Town is kind of the distribution portal of mm -hmm. this Live Nation kind of concept. And somewhere in Beverly Hills, there's a signed contract by Michael W. Smith that was not signed by Live Nation. Wow. They closed the division the week we signed the contract. No. So what do you do? That is when I said, it's over. Hmm. Because what we had done in that two years basically had to lay everybody off. I didn't sign anything new. But I had so much emotional energy in that Live Nation deal. 
that when that went away, I remember sitting with Michael going, I, I don't want to keep going. I, 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 I just, I kind of lost a passion for how do, how do you do this? We're, we're small, we're tiny. We don't have a staff. We'd have to start over again. We have to get a new roster. It's like, I, and everything we just looked at over the last two years looks like the right model to me. And now we don't get it. Hmm. So that's when I, that's the first time I saw how the live event is going to be more bulletproof than the recorded music. Mm-hmm. Not, not just a stop on Rocket Town, but that really helped me pivot to, mm-hmm. oh, people are always going to want to come to shows. People are always going to want to celebrate great music, great sport, great whatever. We want to be together when we're celebrating things like that. And so, I that that's what really started me down the path that I'm currently on, which is 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 really creatively putting entertainment packages in different places. So, okay, so Rocket Town, do you still have a like a building? You did because I remember yeah. being over there right towards the end. That's right when I met you. I think you were doing those after the vinyl projects. Is that what they were called? <laughs> Be- Beyond it was before the- vinyl, what was it? I don't know. It was something. Was I had so a fun. Yeah, you put yeah, one of my yeah, songs yeah. on that thing, and I remember really? when I met you, and John Andrade was there. W- were you on it, or was yeah, one of your songs was, on what, it? Well, but, well, oh, okay. You were the I artist. Don't I don't remember. I think I remember thinking, I wonder if I'm going to, well, maybe I'm going to get signed to Rocket Town, and then one, and then Rocket Town <laughs> didn't exist. <laughs> well, um, that's what I remember. There yeah. was a, there was a, so in the, so I talked about 2004. And then closing in 2008. Mm-hmm. There's two years of Live Nation. So there was certainly some attrition beginning to happen. So part of the way that the labels um, existed was their back catalog. You know, if, you, mm-hmm. if you're Word or Sparrow or all that, and you've got 50 years of things that are continually selling, you can go through a shift like the digital market better yeah. than a label that has... 17 records or whatever we had yeah. like our margin we can't we can't can't hang that long mm-hmm. plus i got distracted on this other model mm-hmm. so the reason i can't remember whether you were on a project that i can't remember the name of <laughs> is i was letting john andrade run with things i was letting sure, and that's good yeah, yeah but yeah i don't i don't remember a lot about the last couple of years at okay. rocket town yeah. because i was on the live nation deal yeah I mean, somebody texted me one night about somebody that was on one of the singing shows, The Voice or something. And he was like, you know, he sent me a screenshot. He's like, check this out. And I was like, cool, who's that? And he's and this was a journalist friend of mine from Dallas. And he goes, you signed him to Rocket Town. And I look, and it's got his name on it. And <laughs> Total I, blank. I, I didn't remember him, and I didn't remember the band. Oh, my God. So, uh, so there was definitely chaos at that time. Yeah, there was definitely some chaos going on at that time, and that's the first time that I really laid awake at night, mm. thinking about families that we were that were employed, artists yeah. that had audiences. Like really thinking about, you know, if this goes away, what happens? Yeah. And gosh, that was that that's that was really hard. Um, and we had marketed ourselves as a family. So, you know, and we, and we were, mm-hmm. so to have a day where you have to lay off the art department Ugh. is just the worst. 
and let you the know? artists go, I guess, right? And Yeah, and, and well, Chris had left by that point. Okay. Chris decided he didn't want to re-up with us. Mm-hmm. And that began, so, you know, he was a Pied Piper to get people in. Yeah. And then when he left, there started to be a little bit of fallout from that. Yeah. Um, we did some good, we did some really good tours in that time. Um, we did good work. Yeah. I wish it would have ended better. Mm. Um, I, I, I I, I, I do wish that, but I'm super thankful for that era. Yeah. I, I really do. Th- if I, if I want to think about the 30 years that I've been here, that was my favorite. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so how old were you when Rockettown ended? Probably f- 41, 42. Okay. So basically, what's your family like? like what's, yeah, yeah, yeah. What does life look like for you? So I am married to Laura Lynn, and we have been married 26 years, and she was Chaz's assistant at Blanton Harrell. Oh, wow. That's how we met. And um, I was on one side of the building. She was on the other. She was way too hot for me to ever think about asking out, so she ended up asking me out, which I love (laughs) telling that story because if you see us together, you would never believe it. Um, We got married in 93. We have four biological children. We are currently 23. 21-year-old twins, 19-year-old, and then we adopted from Haiti five years ago, and he's nine. So we have five children. Mm-hmm. Our boys are in New York. My daughter is finishing her senior year at University of Tennessee. My younger daughter is just starting her freshman year of college. And Giordani, um, my little guy, is in fourth grade. So I'm the only 53-year-old at the Chuck E. Cheese parties these days going, <laughs> hey, Skipper, what's you know, like the dads are all like 17 years old. And I'm going, okay. So, yeah. But uh, you ask so a good, you ask got, a good point. That high is, school, middle oh my school. Gosh. And, and now what? Yeah. And I'm not independently wealthy and there's mouths to feed. And my gosh, that was trying time michael was real generous through the downturn you know but then there came a time where it was like okay this has got to end yeah and yeah then then it becomes what am i going to do my so what, my what identity has been wrapped up in this for a long time huh what, what what was harder finding the next thing to do or or figuring out that identity piece hmm and they're linked. Pro- 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 they are linked because, you know, a lot of that's ego. I mean, and I wanted that to continue and it wasn't going to. So I had to go back to, okay, what do I have to offer? You know, kind of going to where the whole theme of what you're doing right now. What, what do I do next? How marketable is this skill in this digital world? And um, what I did next was I was hired to run a short-lived company out of Cool Springs that – did a global talent search for Avon Cosmetics. <laughs> wow, didn't yeah. see that one coming. Yeah, n- nor did I. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was, it was a weird chapter. But I got to see for the first time how huge the music industry is around the world. Hmm. Our judges were, you know, Fergie and um, uh, Sheila E. I met Sheila there. David oh, wow. Pack um, from Ambrosia. Then, then the regional judges were all the superstars from Russia and Brazil. And so, oh wow, Avon's How an cool. Avon's an kind of in America. It's kind of an 
older cosmetic company, but around the globe, it's kind of, it's huge. So, really? So what they wanted to do, which was a genius plan, a, a guy who's still a very good friend and mentor to me, really sold them in on using the American Idol kind of thing to create this Avon Idol that basically will get new representatives. Mm. So use music as a way to sell their product. There's a series of pivots, but then yeah. have, have ended with the idea of using music, entertainment, artistry to prop up other product, not like commercially, but like properties, like the town of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, hired me to put on festival to drive tourism there. Mm. So they give you a great budget, and it's basically like, hey, we need to put people in hotel rooms. Can you do this? Give we them a reason to be there. Huey Lewis and Jason Isbell and 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 Lyle Lovett. You know, great, great festival. It, I started going, wow, entertainment. Everybody wants to be around entertainment. So I started finding these places that just would hire me to infuse their community, their resort, their place with creativity. So where I am now is really thinking through people love to be around art. They love to be around creatives. They like to infuse creative material into things. So I work in the corporate market now. I just did a magic show for six months. Which was awesome, and thank you for those tickets. (laughs) It really was, really, really was. But all of that just is, I still am a huge champion of the artist. I'm still a huge champion of creativity, moves the needle, creates conversation. And corporations are getting more and more into it now because the millennial force is so huge, and Mm -hmm. they have to be entertained every 20 seconds. Another thing I found out when I started working around the Live Nation idea, but especially now, is people have real budgets to spend on things. And I want to help them steward that well, as mm. opposed to let's do a three-day corporate party in Nashville and then let's hire somebody like Cool and the Gang to play the show where everybody sits at the bar. And, you know, like that's not really infusing creativity into mm-hmm. what the message of the company is. So that has been it's a growing thing that really is, is working. So it's still discovering great things that work at great places and great kind of company ideas. So we've been talking a lot the last few months. You reached out and pitched an idea to mm-hmm. me, which I thought was really fascinating of saying, I'm not totally sure what's what I'm going to do next. Mm. And let's talk about that on the podcast, because typically people don't often want to come and share their story until they've got like a bow on it. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, that was hard, but now we're here and that's great. (laughs) And that's good. Those are good stories. But it takes some guts to say like, hey, I'd like to see what other people think. Yeah. So with that in mind, to the listener, we're going to ask some questions of you guys in a little bit. But Don, would you tell me a little bit about like what's possibly next for you and what's going through your mind as you're trying to think about what what does the next season of my life look like? Um. Part of the reason I reached out to you is because I'm a fan of the podcast. Um, I'm I'm probably consuming podcasts like I used to consume music, you know? <laughs> Dude, I am. Somebody asked me the other day, it was like, uh, I was at a wedding, and this song starts, and everybody goes out and starts dancing. I'm standing with a friend's wife, and she goes, do you know this song? And I said... Unless it's on NPR, I probably don't know it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> she goes, yeah, me too. So, um, But I also listen to a lot of bad podcasts. Um, and I know really quick if I'm going to be engaged or not. And with yours, I, I got engaged. And mm-hmm. with Brian Koppelman's, I'm real engaged. And there's just certain where I just go, there's good conversation. The thing I thought about with yours is 
first of all, you know I love the name because I wanted it. <laughs> I was like, I, 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 I thought, okay, I'm going to start a podcast. And I love this idea of constant reinvention. Like we're constantly in this place in the arts community where the, you got to have a lot more hats than you used to have. So I ended but up... But that, that's worldwide. That's in every... They say that's in every industrialized nation that you, you can expect to change career every five years. That's amazing. As Our technology changes, as the, cult, the culture and the economy changes. So we're, we are, a, we are a, a culture that thinks we're supposed to have a job that you get when you grow up. Mm-hmm. But unless you're a doctor, probably, or a lawyer or something, like 90% of the workforce will not have the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. So we... We're constantly wrestling with our identity and our calling, and we don't. We're all, I think, no matter what sector you're in, kind of a little bit freaking out right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good, good point. So I, so my idea for you, what? But so I ended up recording an episode of a podcast where I interviewed a guy um, who runs a marketing firm, which was the same concept that you have, like. Okay, what you started doing this and now you're doing that. How'd you get here? And I just remember thinking through these words, and I think I literally Google searched pivot, and I, and your face pops up. But I'm like, <laughs> and I think it was when you first started, like, dang it, I just missed it. So, but I like you and I like what you're doing. So let me listen. And I kind of got hooked on a few. And what dawned on me recently was, is there a way to make this a little bit more interactive? Yeah, there are probably people that listen to this because they're in that position of what am I going to do next or how do I go? And I thought this could be as equipping as it is entertaining. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm okay to raise my hand and go, I've talked for 57 minutes. I shouldn't say that. You're going to edit it. I've talked for a long time now <laughs> about the things that I do and the unique skill set that I have. And I'm constantly thinking through what are other things I can do. So why wouldn't I crowdsource that conversation? It's not, pivot audience, please tell Dom where he's going next. Yeah. It's more, what have you heard? Because there are times at the end of some of your podcasts that almost I wish that would be asked. Hmm. What have you heard in this conversation that impacts you? We just talked about one before uh, we push play on this that dramatically impacted me yesterday that I listened to of yours, of the Hmm. anonymous guest that you had and his quest to get to this country. And I was like, okay, that was not something I thought I'd enjoy listening to, but I do want to know the rest of the story. What's he doing now? Is there a way I can help? You know, Sergius, so I know it's that's a different one, but you've set the stage well to go, let's talk about change. And shipping a podcast every week is really hard work and takes a lot of time. And but I think there's a way to kind of go, what are you what are what, audience, what are your ideas? Or what are your stories? Or what are you hearing that might be something that Don's not thinking about or Joe's not thinking about or whatever towards the end that there could be a conversation we could have in some, and I don't know whether that looks like yeah. email or website, but I just thought this idea of kind of crowdsourcing the conversation around pivot, um, I really, I, I literally remember I was on a trip somewhere and I just kind of woke up with it and hmm. thinking about it and I was like, I gotta, I gotta get to Andy and talk about this. Mm-hmm. And you were kind of, when we met, you were kind of like, you know, I'm thinking about what's that next chapter. Yeah, I've been thinking that same thing. So, I, you know, and that's part of what I do. I, st- I stand next to artists and go, hey, have you thought of this? Or, you know, that's kind of, I guess I'm, I'm A&Ring your podcast right now. <laughs> I need it. <laughs> As an A&R guy yourself, you know what that's like because you, 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 you've been through both. So. Like a counselor needs to be in counseling, they say. A&R yeah. guys need to be A&R. So, well, so what, I, what I thought we might do yeah. 
is throw this out to people. My email address is andrew at everybodypivots.com. That's the podcast email address. If you've heard something in this conversation or uh, if you've heard something, if someone has said something to you in your life, they've asked you a question and that question has been really impactful in helping you figure out, process what's going on, what's next, would you send me that question? Mm. And I thought what we might do is get together in like three or four weeks mm -hmm. and talk through some of those questions, answer them, maybe you, maybe both of us, and then also discuss what's powerful about those questions. And um, that might be a good place for us to start being able to have dialogue. But I'm excited about this. I love the idea of it. I, and I think... Um, and if you've got other ideas, throw them out. No, I, I, what, I, what I tend to think about is we don't work on as big a teams as we once did, hmm. you know? And so you get limited to your ideas pretty quickly if you're not in a robust community. And I have great friends and great mentors that I take my ideas to all the time who help me shape all of that. But I just thought the whole idea, I mean, I, I believe that social media in general has not been great. I think that's a fair assessment. But then I look at GoFundMes and things like this and I mm -hmm. look at it and I go, and there's a need. Like This almost feels like the Old Testament, you know, like the community comes together and helps. Hmm. The widow is in need of, you know, like that, that's a good use. Well, the good side of social media or all of that is what are you hearing on your earbuds in Erie, Pennsylvania and Seattle, Washington? And, you know, what, what, like, let's engage an audience in talking about a conversation or to someone who may want that. And that would include me. I've got, I, I told you before we started, I, the next thing it looks like I'm doing puts me more on the stage as opposed to the side of the stage. And that petrifies me. Yeah. Cause you've never been in that position. I've always wanted, I've always been comfortable on the side of the stage. I mean, that night at the Ryman doing the Rich Mullins thing, uh, was a complete joy for me hmm. to stand there and watch a generation of people who were consumers of that product excellently play that top to bottom. And, and that, is a fulfilling moment to be, but I'm in the shadow. And so what I'm thinking about and being encouraged to go to next looks a little bit more like, okay, now maybe your name's gonna be on the front as opposed to in the um, liner notes. Hmm. And then that's a different level of insecurity. And yeah. I know that's kind of, a, a, it's a little bit veiled because I'm not really ready to talk about it yet, but I have to wrestle with that. Mm -hmm. What would that look like? Do I have something to say? Do I have a prompt to engage a conversation in a way that we could come together and, you know, better things? But I don't, I, I'm not at a crossroads, but I'm constantly looking for what's next. Mm, that's, that's well said. That's well said. And I'm limited to my 10 people. Hmm. So if you bring another thousand or who knows, the pivot might have 500,000 people listening I'm to it by sure now, it but... <laughs> There could be one person with a wild idea going, hey, if that guy invites me into the conversation, let's have the conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think that feels like another chapter for this. Yeah. And I guess I guess that happens on podcasts, but I don't hear it a ton. I don't hear – I mean, I hear tell us what you're here, you know, give us feedback, mm -hmm. go on iTunes and leave us a review. I hear that. Yeah. This is more about engagement. Yeah. 
I'm excited to try it. So any of this has inspired you in any way. If you've got anything you want to add to this conversation or thoughts that have helped you in these similar conversations, send that to Andrew at everybodypivots.com. And Don and I are going to get back together in three or four weeks. And we're going to pick up where we left off and uh, invite you guys in. And I'm, I'm excited about that. That would be really fun. I hope we get one. <laughs> I think we'll get one. <laughs> I'm not great at responding to the email, but we do get email. That's great. Um, no, I thank you for being open to the conversation and open to the idea because I, I, I love what you said five minutes ago about just how career paths are now three, five years, you know, mm -hmm. and I believe it. I don't see, I mean, I don't see my kids on a trajectory to I'm going to be in a job for 40 years. They're doing great, but I can see that they're going to be going, this leads to this, leads to this over here. So I think this would be a useful tool for people to be able to just have a conversation about what does it look like. I love it. Well, that I'm going to, I'm, usually I do the little bumper, but I feel like we're just going to stop it right there. And I'm going to say, we'll be back next week with another great episode. And then we're going to come back and we're going to discuss. Uh, so send us emails at andrew at everybodypivots.com. Have a great week. Now go do something awesome. <laughs>